to the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. Not to sound like a broken record, but I'm sorry that this episode is coming out so late. I'm afraid that my schedule at the moment is rather a bit too full for my own good. Maybe even for my health. That's not an excuse, but an honest explanation. I'm going to say this. I think for the time being, the goal in the coming year will be to have only one Diary podcast out a month. Having said that, I do hope to have a few more video goodies in 2016 to help supplement the podcast itself. With that out of the way, let's get into discussing the title for this episode, which, as most of you correctly guessed from the sound clip at the end of the Crazy Climber episode, was indeed Stern Electronics' 1980 arcade classic, Berserk. Berserk was released by Stern Electronics on November 12, 1980. Stern Electronics was created when, in 1977, they purchased Chicago Coin, a pinball manufacturer that had filed for bankruptcy. While being a moderate success at producing tables such as 1979's Meteor, based on the 1979 film of the same name with Sean Connery, Natalie Wood, and Henry Fonda, it was when they threw their hat into the arcade ring they started making traction especially when they started manufacturing titles designed and programmed by Konami, like 1981's Amadar, Scramble, Super Cobra, and 1982's Puyan, to name a few. Berserk was designed by Alan McNeil, an employee of Dave Nutting Associates, which at the time was part of Bally Midway. Alan worked on such arcade titles as 1977's Boot Hill and 1978's Sea Wolf 2, as well as working on the Bally Astrocade, which, in a 2010 interview, McNeil stated that it should have beaten the Atari 800 to store shelves, but that Midway couldn't overcome a static issue that would fry the main chip in the console. He even said that he thought 90% of the units were dead by the time they reached the end of the assembly line. Ouch. When Alan asked his superiors if he could perhaps begin work on a game of his own design, he was rightfully upset when refused stating that he didn't have enough experience to take on the challenge of designing an arcade title. McNeil began looking for work elsewhere, and was hired by another arm of Stern Electronics, called URL, the Universal Research Labs, who were looking for help in programming. When he was hired by URL, he inquired that, after solving their programming issues, if it would be okay if he began working on an arcade game, and they were delighted to say yes. You see, the actual ideal of Berserk came to McNeil thanks to a dream he had when working at David Nutting Associates. The programmer's dream presented a black-and-white arcade game, one that featured a humanoid figure being mobbed by angry robots. It's been said that Berserk was intended to be a black-and-white title, but after seeing Defender, they decided to go with color. I'm not sure about that, though, because Defender didn't come out until February of 1981. Anyway... McNeil handled not just the game design, but the pixel art and even the much-vaunted sound effects. The speech used in the game that was sure to make a player stop in the arcade, like myself, when I walked by the Berserk cabinet in games people play and heard... 
That speech ability came about when a salesman dropped by to show off a type of speech chip his company had developed. It was intended for toys and games, to aid the seeing impaired. Of course, McNeil thought it would be the perfect addition for his video game. The Stern Electronics Flyer boasts the game contains a 30-word vocabulary. The title of Berserk itself was chosen by McNeil because of his fondness for Fred Saberhagen's Berserker science fiction novels, in which automaton self-replicating machines strive to destroy all life. Alan's history in the video game world and of Berserk is a fascinating read, and I will be sure to include that 2010 interview on this podcast post over on the Retroist. I've said this many times before on the site, but I do wish they could interview every single developer and creator from the golden age of video games. Get those details on record before we lose them. That was a lot more detail into the creation of the game than we normally are allowed. So let's go ahead and jump into the gameplay for Berserk. The game tasks one to two players, taking alternate turns, with controlling a green humanoid figure if you are player one, and a purple version as player two. You have been thrust into a nightmarish world of a beautiful but deadly maze populated by murderous robots and their maniacal overlord, Evil Otto. Using an eight-way joystick allows the player to move up and down, left and right, and diagonally in those directions. The fire button will allow you to snap off a laser bolt in whichever direction you are pointing the joystick in, but when you press the button, it will halt the humanoid's movement. The humanoid has many adversaries in the maze, including the walls of the electrified maze itself. If the player comes in contact with a wall, they are electrocuted and lose a life. Hold on to your seats, friends. That stern electronics flyer reports that Berserk contains over 64,000 random maze patterns. There are, of course, the robots who roam the maze, with their single eye shifting back and forth in constant search for the humanoid. McNeil has admitted he was indeed influenced by the singular red eye of 1978's Battlestar Galactica's Cylons. These Solus foes have one driving purpose, and that is to... Get the humanoid intruder alert, intruder alert. The humanoid must not escape. The player will obtain 50 points for every robot he blasts while navigating the maze. That includes the bots that are destroyed by the overzealous shots of their fellow automatons. Yeah, the robots are so intent on dispatching the humanoid, they will indeed shoot their own forces in an attempt to zap the player. And they will even walk into the electrified walls in each other, causing them to explode in an effort to touch you. In the early stages, you can use the bots' overwhelming stupidity to your advantage, but in the higher levels, you'll be too busy dodging the return fire and staying out of their reach. Of course, if a robot's bolt touches the humanoid, you lose a life, as well as if you come in contact with the robot itself. The robot difficulty is tracked by their color scheme, which changes when a certain score is obtained. 0 to 260 points, you will face yellow robots who will not fire at the player. 260 to 1200 points, you will fight red robots who fire one shot. 1200 to 3000 points, and the robots will become light blue and be able to fire two shots at a time at the player. 3,000 to 4,500, and the player will face light green robots that can shoot three bullets. 4,500 to 6,000, and the robots become purple and will fire up to four shots at the humanoid. 6,000 to 8,000 points brings in the yellow robots again, but these will unleash five shots. 8,000 to 10,000, and the robots change to white and these guys will hurl a single shot that is twice as fast as the previous robot's rate of fire. 
And if you manage to obtain 10,000 to 12,000 points, you will face off against light blue robots again, but they can fire two of those lightning quick shots. After 12,000 points, it all cycles over until you hit 20,000 points, and then the robots will be a continuous blue and be able to shoot two rapid shots. A free man, by the way, depending upon the dip switch settings, will earn another humanoid at 5,000 or 10,000 points. Now, of course, the player does not have to stick around the maze and destroy all the robots. You can leave through any of the three openings that might be present. But upon entering the new room, the opening you just entered from will be blocked, so you can't dash back into the other area. Of course, if you do leave while robots are still present, you will forfeit your bonus points as you leave that room, and perhaps, worst of all, you'll be heckled by the robots themselves. The bonus points you receive for wiping out all of the robots is 10 points for each robot that the level started out with. So, if you had 12 and cleared them out, you would of course receive 120 bonus points. Now, sometimes the player will just have to take the verbal abuse from the robots by leaving the room, especially when Evil Auto makes its appearance on the level. The bouncing smiley face of death is by far one of the most frightening villains in the golden age of arcade games. Simply, because the player can do nothing to stop Otto. Your laser blast will not harm it, and it can safely pass through the electrified walls of the maze. Otto doesn't even mind destroying its own robot forces, as it crushes them under its spherical shape in an effort to reach you and ending a humanoid's life. Evil Otto's appearance is actually a clever function designed by McNeil to ensure that a player doesn't just hang around a maze. When Otto appears, and there are a handful of robots left intact, it will bounce towards the player rather slowly. The more robots the player or Otto destroys, the faster it gets. When all robots have been cleared, it moves twice as fast, so it's a very good idea to be near an exit before dispatching that last bot. Now, Evil Otto's origin is rather humorous, as Alan McNeil has explained in that interview. The name itself is a pun for Evil Automatic, as its purpose is to get the player automatically out of the room. But it was also a jab at the security manager of Dave Nutting Associates, named Dave Otto, an apparently overzealous individual who decreed that all of the engineering and programming staff would have lunch at the same time, exactly from noon until 1 p.m. To enforce this, the security manager would actually lock the doors until 1 p.m. So, the staff couldn't get back into the building if they happened to return early from lunch. They defeated this by deciding to take two-hour lunches the following week. This naturally was noticed by the head of Dave Nutting Associates, and the practice of auto-locking the doors was soon halted. Although, this apparently didn't stop the security manager from installing speakers in literally all of the rooms, including the bathrooms, and piping in Montavani music loudly. Evil Auto indeed. And that really is the gameplay in a nutshell for Berserk. It's simple. You just do your best to survive as long as you can. I think it's fair to say that not only was the simpleness of the gameplay what made it so very popular, but I've always believed this title is what inspired Eugene Jarvis to create the Williams Electronics classic Robotron 2084. Skilled players of Berserk, which I willingly admit I am not one of, have a couple of bits of knowledge that they frequently pass along. 
there is a one to two second delay after you enter a maze before the robots start coming for you. Use it to clear out those around you. Give yourself some wiggle room when the others start firing at you. The humanoid is taller than he is wide, and that presents an opportunity for a player to more easily avoid robot blasts from below and above, which is why champs insist on taking out the robots to the sides first. There is a pixel space between the humanoid's head and body, so if a robot's bolt passes between that area, the game won't register it as a hit and take a life. Speaking of bolts, if a player happens to fire a laser that is traveling in the same line as a robot shot, they will negate each other which in later levels isn't that helpful as they will be firing at you quickly and multiple times. And remember, since Evil Auto will also show up where the player entered the level, you can move up and down, sort of guiding Auto into smashing into its robotic forces as it tries to reach you. Of course, remember that the more he destroys, the faster he becomes. And here's a neat little trick. If you move the humanoid's head above a wall just far enough to shoot above it, the robots on the other side of it won't be able to hit you their blasts will hit the wall. Using this tactic, you can kill most of the robots in the maze. Remember, of course, to hold down the fire button during this, though, so the humanoid will stand still and not bump into the electrified maze. One other thing I feel I should mention about Berserk is the very colorful bezel artwork that surrounds the game's monitor. To me, it really looks like it might have been created by legendary comic artist Jim Steranko. The character of the humanoid is represented, shooting at the hulking robots, and it almost looks like Steranko's work on the Marvel Comics title, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. But I can't find any record of this. Perhaps the artist who did it was creating an homage to Steranko. Hey, if you know the answer, please contact us. The world record holder for Berserk, for fast bullets and pattern allowed, is Steve Wagner, who obtained 350,340 points and was verified by a Twin Galaxy referee on April 12, 2009. The record holder for slow bullets and pattern allowed is held by Phil Younger, who earned 401,130 points on October 4, 2008. Twin Galaxies explains the differences between fast and slow bullets as under each title's special rules. For Steve's record, it states, This variation is for a cabinet that has the RC-31 logic program installed. This is what makes the bullets fast. For Phil's world record, it states, This variation is for a cabinet that has the RC-28 logic program installed. This is what makes the bullets long and slow. This also makes auto twice as fast as the fast bullet auto after a score of 5,000 points. At the Arcadia Retrocade, I'm pretty sure the high score is being juggled back and forth between Michael Dietrich and another regular of ours named Lance. I'm afraid I do not have the exact numbers as Shea Mathis is currently transferring the high scoreboards to a digital version that will be displayed in the arcade. Naturally, a game as popular as Berserk would be ported to the popular home consoles and computers of the day, like 1982's Atari 2600 port of the game, which included settings that allowed you to banish Evil Otto with a shot to remove him from the level temporarily. Also in 1982, the Milton Bradley distributed home system, the Vectrix, had a version of Berserk, as did the Emerson Arcade 2001. Milton Bradley would also release a pretty awesome board game version designed for two players. One player controlled the humanoid, and the other player controlled Evil Auto as well as the robots. Players alternate sides for a maximum of three rounds until both have been zapped three times and destroyed as the humanoid. Humanoid lives are represented by chips placed in front of the player. Each time a player's humanoid is zapped, the player surrenders one chip. The object of the game is to zap more robots while controlling the humanoid than your opponent. 
1983, the Atari 5200 port was released and unlike any of the home versions, it contained voice synthesizing to mimic the arcade game. Not too shabby, right? There were plans for this version to be released on the Atari 400 and 800 home computers, but were sadly cancelled. Although there were no official Berserk releases for the Atari 400, 800, and 1200, CBS Electronics did release Shootout that was basically a clone of the original game, although it didn't have the voice synthesization, nor did it contain an evil auto-like character. Instead, the player had to worry about a timer for each level. A clone of Berserk was released for the MSX in 1985 under the title of Robot Wars and appears to be a fairly faithful port of the arcade game. But the most exciting port came in 1998 when John Donzilla created the first new title for the Odyssey 2 in 15 years. His game isn't entitled Berserk, however, but Amok. And now, this message. systems from Atari. Have you played Atari today? This is the system chosen two to one over Atari and Intellivision for real arcade gameplay. Fantastic! Presenting the revolutionary Vectrex arcade system. Ordinary home video games can't match the laser-sharp visual effects of Vectrex because only Vectrex has a real arcade screen built in. No TV set needed, so every Vectrex cartridge gives you real arcade gameplay that others can't. Vectrex. It stands alone. Stern Electronics' Berserk was popular enough to be included as one of the songs on 1982's concept album Pac-Man Fever by the duo Buckner and Garcia. It was the last track of the album, the eighth song, and it was entitled Goin' Berserk. The album earned a gold certification for selling over 500,000 copies. darker aspect we should discuss about Berserk before wrapping up the show. It's been reported that the game was the first title to have killed players. This might all be urban legend, and I've found all manner of sites that claim it's real, while others cry this is false, so take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to read from the Wikipedia entry for this bit of info. Quote, in January 1981, Jeff Daly made the Berserk Top 10 list after posting a high score of 16,660 points, and suddenly died of a heart attack at age 19 
a few seconds after the game was over. One year later, in October 1982, Peter Borkowski entered Friar Tuck's game room in Calumet City, Illinois, and made the Berserk Top 10 list twice in 15 minutes. Astonishingly, he collapsed just a few seconds after the game was over before dying of a heart attack at age 18. His high scores are unknown." End quote. Now, in that interview with McNeil, he does mention hearing about a player dying. Still, this just seems very much like an urban legend, but yet again, I don't know for sure. Now, before we wrap it all up, we got a wonderful bit of email from a Mr. William Burton that states, Dear Mr. Vic, I'm only nine, so I don't have a Facebook account yet. I'm using dads to ask an arcade question for your podcast. Which game at Arcadia do you think takes the longest to complete? I love playing Battletoads, but it takes a lot of credits and time to finish. Dad said a good player could finish Dragon's Lair in less than 10 minutes if they didn't mess up. I love the podcasts and listen to them all. See you at the arcade, William. William, thanks for contacting us. Your dad is quite correct. It does take 10 minutes, barring any mistakes, to finish Dragon's Lair. Battletoads takes at least 45 minutes, but I would say the longest game is Ghosts and Goblins, because you have to play through the entire game twice to truly beat it. And I think that about wraps up our podcast for this go-around. Friends, I hope you'll remember that the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast has a Facebook page now. So, if you can, hop on over and give us a like. It's a great spot to share your own arcade memories and enjoy the celebration of classic arcade and home video games. Our ending theme, which is entitled River Raid, was composed by the talented Tony Longworth. You can listen to even more of his music on SoundCloud and on his official site, which you can reach at www.tonylongworth.com. If you have any feedback for the show or perhaps a suggestion for a game to cover, you can reach me at VicSage at RetroWest.com. Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on iTunes. And for further information about the Arcadia Retrocade, please make sure to follow them over on their Facebook page. I'll be sure to provide a link on the Retroist post. Of course, I want to give a huge thanks to the Retroist for not just hosting this podcast, but for allowing me to record in the Retroist vault. And when you need your daily retro fix, why not visit the Retroist site at www.retroist.com. Have a token on me as we listen to a clip for the game I will discuss on the next show. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye, and we hope to see you next time.